0: Good evening, and welcome to the National Theatre. Um, my name's Stephanie Merritt, and it's a very great pleasure this evening to be able to introduce for this platform Professor Orlando Figes and two of the wonderful actors from collaborators, Jacqueline de Ferreri and Alex Jennings. Orlando Figes is Professor of History at Birkbeck College at the University of London and is also the author of a number of award-winning histories of Russia, including among Others, A People's Tragedy, Natasha's Dance, and The Whisperers. But his new book, Just Send Me Word, is something a little different, and I'm going to leave it to him to introduce it to you. Please welcome Orlando Figes.
1: Thank you, Stephanie. Yes, it's a love story, and it's a true story, and it's based on a remarkable cache of letters that I was lucky enough to literally stumble on in Moscow, four years ago, when I was at the Human Rights Organization Memorial, and three trunks had just come in, and we opened up the smallest of them, and there were about 1,250 letters, as we were later to find out. Although at that time, we could only weigh them. We didn't know how many there were. And these letters, it soon became apparent, were really very, very, very special. They were exchanged between Lev, Glebovich, Mishenko and Svetlana Alexandrovna Ivanova uh, between 1946 and 1954, when Lev was a prisoner in the Pechora labor camp. It is a unique correspondence, I think probably the most important archive ever to come out of the Gulag, important because of the size of this correspondence, not just the 1,246 letters, but several hundred others related to them, even more importantly, by the fact that we have both sides of the correspondence, and that's extremely unusual. Prisoners may keep letters sent to them in prison because they cherish them, but very few people kept letters sent to them by a prisoner, but Svetlana did, and we can talk about how that went on, why she kept them later, perhaps. They're also very important, and this is extremely unusual, because they are uncensored virtually all letters coming in and out of the Gulag had to pass through the censor and have a stamp saying they had been read by the censor. These letters are unusual because they were smuggled in and out of the camp by voluntary workers and officials who had the uh, possibility of moving in and out of the camp, for reasons I can explain later, and who would take the letters out when they left and bring letters in when they came to see Lev, And so they are not just uncensored, but they are, as Lev and Svetlana become more confident about that smuggling system, extremely candid about conditions in the camp. So these letters are not just intimate uh, and tell a love story, but they also tell us a, a remarkable amount about what it was like to live in a Labour camp. We have, of course, memoirs of what it was like. We have histories written based on memoirs about what it was like But these letters I think are a unique resource in that they're probably the only real-time record of daily life in the Gulag written by a prisoner from within the barbed wire zone and they're extraordinarily revealing. But I think perhaps the single most important characteristic I would point to in these letters is their beauty. They are extremely well written. That's because Lev, Glebovich, and Svetlana Alexandrovna were exceptionally remarkable people. They met in 1935 as first-year physicists at Moscow University. At that time, perhaps the best physics faculty in the world, Andrei Sakharov, was to be in the year below them. They didn't fall in love overnight, but they began to court, to go with their group of friends. It was quite a chaste relationship, I think. And then in 1941, when they had still not married, so they're not fiance and husband, they're just girlfriend and boyfriend, Lev goes off to war with the university militia and is immediately captured in the encirclement of Vyazma by the Germans and passes through a series of first labor camps in, on Soviet soil where the Germans try but fail to recruit him as a spy and then is taken off to Germany, where he uh, is in a number of labor camps, where he's forced to work as a translator and interpreter for the Germans because he speaks German. Eventually, in 1945, he runs away uh, from Buchenwald, from one of those death marches coming out of Buchenwald in April 1945, and is captured by the Americans who tried to persuade him to go west. He's a nuclear physicist. He says, no, all he has is in Moscow, he has no family. His family have been wiped out in the Civil War, he has just one distant relative whom he calls Aunt Olya. But what he has back in Moscow is Svetlana, and he wants to return. He doesn't know if she's still alive, he doesn't know if she's married. Svetlana has heard nothing from him. But he wants to go back for her and is repatriated onto the Soviet territory in occupied Germany and is immediately arrested by the Soviets and put into what they call filtration camp, where they weeded out collaborators. And Lev, because he'd worked as a translator, was certainly going to be sentenced to the gulag, but they essentially fit him up as a spy. Trick him into a confession of espionage and send him to Pechora, in the far north of Russia, basically as far north on the Urals as you can look uh, for 10 years. It was originally given death sentence, but it's commuted to 10 years. Pechora was an important part of the Gulag settlement of the far north. It was a wood combine where timbers floated down from Arctic forest colonies, were processed into wood uh, and made into furniture. And Lev spends three months hauling timbers out of the river, probably would have died if he'd done it much longer, but then is saved by a remarkable man, Strelkov, who runs the laboratory where they're trying to speed up the process of drying the wood, and because of his scientific expertise, is eventually put into a team running the electric power station, and this gives Lev the first opportunity to write. He doesn't write to Olga because he's frightened she might be married, she might not want to hear from him, she may be dead, for all he knows. So instead, he writes to this distant relative, Aunt Olia, to ask after Svetlana, and a few weeks later, he receives a letter from Svetlana, and she says yes, she's alive, she's been waiting for him all this time. Lev, his head spinning, doesn't sleep that night, and he writes to her at 5 a.m. the following morning.
2: Pechora, 9th of August, 1946. Sveta, Svet, can you imagine what I'm feeling now? I can't put a name to it or measure the happiness I feel. The 8th has always been an important date in my life. You see, I've become a fatalist. And now it has become a joyful date. I went to get the letters for our block and was not at all jealous of those who received letters because I didn't expect anything for myself. I had got a letter from Aunt Olga on the 31st and didn't expect anything else until the start of September. And then, suddenly, my surname, and, as if it were alive, your handwriting. For three years, I had managed to keep safe a tiny scrap of paper with your handwriting. It was all I had of you, until it was confiscated in the full search at Buchenwald on the 3rd of July, 1944. I lived with the hope that you were still alive and that I'd see you again. But on your last birthday, which I celebrated at a difficult moment in the interrogation, I resigned myself to say goodbye to you. I carried on denying myself any hope, not only of our ever meeting again, but even of my ever hearing anything about you. Sveta, if you could only imagine, understand what an interrogation really is, it's not just a question of physical sufferings. I never experienced those. But what it feels like in the soul. Did you know that there's something worse than death? It's mistrust, but I'm getting off the point. And so, anyway, I said goodbye to you, but I couldn't hold out without you. Eight months later, I wrote a letter to Aunt Olia, just on the off chance, without much hope, and I asked her about you. And then on the anniversary of that foolish day, on the 31st of July, 1936, when I nearly drowned and I had to be pulled out of the Istra on my way to see you in Boriskova, I was saved again. I had never expected such an affectionate, warm-hearted and maternal letter. In fact, I hadn't expected a letter at all. Aunt Olya wrote all about you. You, alive.
1: In the conversation that develops between Lev and Svetlana, Svetlana talks a lot about Lev's humiliation and his pride. I think we can already see in that letter the sense of humiliation that all prisoners feel, that they're abandoned, that no one wants to hear from them. And that's why Lev didn't dare write to Svetlana to begin with. But he, I think, sees in her letters a form of salvation. And he refers back to an episode in 1936 when he had nearly drowned and had been saved from the river. Svetlana's letters mean for him that someone is waiting for him. He feels that She's living for him through these letters and that gives him reason to hope. And Svetlana says in one of her first letters how she's trying to give him that hope to instill in him that optimism.
3: Levy, I have always believed in you, in everything. It was so before, has been all these years and is still the case now. It's true. No one can vouch for the future. Yet even now, I believe in our future, though I cannot picture it clearly to myself. All that matters is that we can be together. As for everything else, I think I have become wise enough not to let anything trivial or beyond our control spoil the most important thing. I notice you mentioned virtue once again. Have you any idea, Levy, how angry I was about your virtue back then, when I was a first-year student? How many times during these years have I reproached myself for spoiling things between us and, God knows why, tormenting you? And how painful it was for me to think that perhaps I would never get the chance to ask for your forgiveness. You know, Levy, not so long ago, during a conversation about life in general, about its difficulties and hardships, a girl said that I was the happiest of them all. She meant because the two of us haven't yet spoilt things for ourselves or for each other. When others spoil it for you, it's not so bad. And I didn't protest. It's true, Levy. They don't have you, which means they cannot be the happiest. So there you are. It's confirmed by logic and dialectics. People have tried to prove to me so many times in word and deed that a loving couple cannot be happy in a hovel unless it's insulated and equipped with limitless electricity and gas and other such comforts. But I haven't given up, Levy. I would only need to see that you are there when I wake up in the morning, and then in the evening to tell you everything that had happened in the day, to look into your eyes and hold you close to me. A fine only, isn't it? For the time being, it would be enough simply to receive your 10th letter. The point of all this is that I want to tell you just three words. Two of them are pronouns and the third is a verb to be read in all the tenses simultaneously. Past, present, and future.
1: I think that's one of the most romantic love letters I've ever read, but the word love doesn't appear. Svetlana's letters are filled with love. Every page has love on it. By writing to him in this way, at great personal risk to herself, she's giving Lev a great deal of love, but she's very restrained in her language. I'm not sure why that is. I think it's partly in her character. She was somebody with quite a dry, cutting sense of humour, which we can perhaps discuss later. I think it's partly because she didn't want to unload herself on him, and he didn't want to unload herself on her, each of them carrying their own burdens. And maybe it's also something to do with the fact that she's a physicist. I don't know. But it's, I love the fact that they're both physicists. Um, you know, uh, they, they talk a lot about science, and they talk about tears as H H2, two O. They don't gush. Uh, Svetlana says at one point that she thinks sentimental words about love are just some sort of commerce. Um, she doesn't like to gush. She's very restrained in her language. Lev is rather more emotional, and I think that's understandable. He's sitting in a labour camp, Svetlana's going to work every day, looking after elderly parents, she's a busy person. Lev is sitting there yearning for her, no doubt wondering what Svetlana's up to, terrified something might have gone wrong if he doesn't hear from her, so he tends to be more emotive in his language. And we'll see that in the next letter, where they're having a conversation about losing time, really. And Lev writes this.
2: Sometimes when I write to you, Sveta, I look at the people around me in the camp, all of them living in circumstances and surroundings so different from what they were used to once. Their spiritual outlook has changed beyond recognition. This is not a matter of aging, of changes a person must go through with age. It would be bad if they didn't. You once said, and quite correctly, you were sitting at your table with principles or thermodynamics, I've forgotten exactly. But I remember it was evening, and a table lamp was buzzing, and I was standing near the piano. But without changing over time, people would not become themselves. What can I say about you, Svetushka? That I see you every day, that I know how you used to be and how you are now and that although I will regret every graying hair on your head, although every additional crease in the corners of your eyes will hurt me, these things must occur. And when they do, they will not take anything away from how I feel about you. They will only add something, something new but yours. Does it really matter if this is called old age? You were my world and always will be. And whatever you were, for me, you will always be my Svet, my light.
1: Svet in Russian means light, and he often played on that. It wasn't just uh, letters that were smuggled in and out of the camp. Svetlana herself was smuggled in and out of the camp. Not once, not twice, not three times but in fact five times, and it's all documented in the letters. This is absolutely unprecedented. No one has recorded anybody being smuggled into a labor camp. Mm -hmm. It was dangerous enough for Svetlana to write with a convicted spy. Her industrial research work in synthetic rubber, quite important in the Soviet Union where tires are needed in all conditions, was already deemed a military secret, so if she was caught corresponding with Lev, she would be in deep trouble. But to be caught smuggling herself into the camp, and I can tell you how she did that later, would certainly have landed her in the Gulag herself. There were immense preparations needed for this uh, first trip in 1947. And one of the people who played a role in this was the mother of another prisoner. And Svetlana writes to Lev with the first letter she can know for certain, is going to be put directly into her hands by somebody she knows, which is Gleb's mother. And so in this letter, she's a good deal more candidate than she has been in previous correspondence.
3: Levy, Gleb's mother visited Aunt Olga and said she would leave for Petra on Wednesday. So here I am, not even knowing what I should write to you, that I miss you, but you know that. I feel I am living outside time, that I am waiting for my life to start, as if if this were an intermission. Whatever I do, it seems like I'm just killing time. I know this is not good. Wasting time deliberately or carelessly is unworthy of a strong person. It is also a fatal mistake, because you can never bring back lost time. I must live, not simply wait. Otherwise, when the waiting is over, I may well find myself incapable of building our life together. I've always had this fear, the fear that love is not enough. One must be able to love, yet also to live together, and to live in this world, which will probably always remain cruel. Yet it seems to me that despite time passing, I've become neither stronger nor more intelligent. I do at least get less worked up about such things as my own stupidity, or about being true to other people I love, however far away they are from me, which in the past caused me to torment myself and others. You too had to suffer on this account. I've lost a lot of H2O over silly issues such as these, It seems to me that I am not strong when I have to wait or when I am angry. That's why I don't now feel that I am standing firmly on my feet. I need you to lean on, in sorrow and in joy. We have to get through this together, walking arm in arm as we used to do. Though I think then I didn't lean on you. I was not heavy on your arm. Am I right? It is not kind of me to write like this or to ask for something you cannot give, which can only bring you pain. I am tired, not just today, but in general. I need support, even if only through these letters, which are a conversation between us. But Levy... You must not get upset. In the end, you and I are happier than many, happier than those who do not know love at all, and than those who do not know how to find it. I hope this makes sense.
1: Lev's letters are remarkable for the insight they give us into the psychology of the prisoner. He has all sorts of fears and anxieties, which I don't think came out in the memoir literature, but do come out in his letters. Fears about what sort of person he will be when he comes out of the Labour camp. And we can hear some of this
2: in this letter. I don't have much to say to bring you comfort, Sveta. Maybe I should not be writing this at all. You once said that it's not always good or necessary to finish painful sentences. But having started, I need to finish. Can you see that the hardest thing for us to bear is not the material hardships at all? It's two other things, the lack of contact with the outside world, and the fact that changes in our personal situation can happen any time and unexpectedly. We have no idea what will happen tomorrow, or even in the next hour. Your official status can change, or you can be sent elsewhere any minute for the most trivial reason, and sometimes for no reason at all. What happened to Strelkov? Sinkovich, he had to leave today, and the multitude of others is proof of this. It's interesting here, in a tragic sort of way, because everything in normal life is magnified. Human shortcomings and defects and the consequences of people's actions take on huge significance. There are virtues, too, of course, but inasmuch as as they don't play a great part in normal circumstances to begin with, here, they become so much rarer that they start to disappear. Ill-will turns into hostility. Hostility takes the form of wild hatred, and pettiness becomes meanness, eventually leading to some crime. Abruptness becomes an insult, suspicion, slander, money-grabbing, robbery, indignation, rage, sometimes ending in murder. Any remotely positive activity becomes pointless and unnecessary from both a selfish angle and a general one. The most one can hope for is something quite dull, like the duties of an usher in an out-of-the-way provincial theatre which at least leaves you 16 hours a day for your personal life and brings in a little money, too. Oh, Sveta, it's such a sunny day today that it seems all this nonsense I have written is of no use to anyone. Svetlana makes her last
1: visit to Petroja in 1951. Three years were to pass without their seeing one another after that, and so they live through their letters. Increasingly, their conversation is about how they're going to live after, if he's released. She has no guarantee about that. And so one of the themes they talk about is living for but also without each other. How are they going to live if they're not going to see each other? So we close now with a sequence in a conversation about that, beginning with Svetlana.
3: I can't decide if it's bad to think of things that are purely for pleasure, to dream of spending time with no purpose. Because right now, what I really want more than anything is to be healthy for our life in the future. Conditions are hardly going to be easy, and I'll need to be strong and resilient. Maybe that's just an excuse for laziness. I usually prefer outings that have a purpose, picking mushrooms and berries, or reading a specific destination to aimless wanderings. But now I have only one goal, to wait for you. The word wait is too passive. Heartache drains my energy and stops me from getting on with life. Something you once said just popped into my head. I wouldn't go anywhere without you. That's true, Levy but I want the world to be good and interesting for you, even without me in it. That will be a real victory for me, because then I'll stop worrying about you. It's not good to count on only one person, the same as having just one child.
2: I agree with you that the world is a good and interesting place no matter who is in it, but only in the most general sense. For none of it is true insofar as it relates to you, Sveta. Sveta, the world is unquestionably good, but it's so much more beautiful when it is lit up by you that I wouldn't want and never would want to look at it without the illumination you bring to it. Do you really want me to enjoy the world in the dark, or at best in the half-light, after you have gone away? Not to count on only one person, (laughs) Sveta, Sveta, if it hadn't been you writing that, if it weren't just your endless selflessness, there's no other word for it, if I'd received your letter from anybody else, I would have stopped writing. While I agree with the general theory, it's an example of faulty reasoning. That will be a real victory for me because then I will stop worrying about you. If only you'd written it in the conditional, Sveta. It cannot happen, and it cannot happen because it would mean the end of everything that's still human inside me. It would be moral suicide, not victory. Whose victory and over whom? Yours, over yourself? In this sense, to claim a victory over yourself is nonsensical. And for somebody or something to vanquish you inside me is impossible because of age, temperament, and our shared and ill-fated past. And why would you try to argue me into such a hollow victory? It's cruel, not kind. Has there really been so little spoken, written and sung over the last thousand years by human beings who have a heart and soul? Svetlia, I don't need these false consolations. You will be better off, seriously, simply spending the winter skiing at the swimming pool, and in the country, taking care of yourself.
3: My darling Lev, I received your letter of the 1st to the 3rd of November yesterday. Levy. I didn't manage to express myself correctly, and I, I don't even know the best way to say what I mean. Only God forbid that I should want somebody or something to vanish me inside you. When I wrote about victory, I meant our victory. Not victory over us, but victory over everything cruel that we've had to face, over the burdens that have made us stumble and caused us pain. I don't want the pain to make you forget, even for a moment, all the good in the world. The earth, the sun, the water, and most importantly, people and relationships. I don't want this joy to subside, and I want us to be young for a long time. Reasoning, any reasoning doesn't come into it, Levy. If the world is lit up already, then I hope it stays as bright, despite the laws of physics and regardless of the distance from the source of light. And in reality, there is no distance, since the source is your attitude towards others, which means it's always within you. Nevertheless, I am right about not counting on just one person, Levy. Life should be taken on so firmly that not even the greatest sorrow can change this attitude. As long as it's not a small-minded attitude from below, but a wise, almost Tolstoyan attitude from above. In that case, it is far from the destruction of what's human. On the contrary, It's what makes us human. I'm frustrated that I can't express myself better. You might as well tear this letter up. I feel compassion for someone who loses his zest for life on the impact with it. Maybe love as well as compassion, but I have the greatest respect for those who remain on their feet. If they do so, not out of flippant bravado, but through willpower, intelligence, and character. I come across more bravely in company than I truly am, but I try to keep going, and I think that's how it should be. Oh, I give up. I can't do it. I want to write a nice, humorous, cheerful letter that will tell you that your letter was like a song to my ears. But instead of that, I've got angry with myself, I'm almost to the point of tears for my inarticulate mumblings. Well, what's there to say about the weather? Only that it is horrible.
0: Thank you so much, we we have to say goodbye to Jacqueline and Alex now they've got to run and get ready for the the performance this evening. So will you join me in thanking them? Thank you. Thank, you. Thank you. Well, that's just given us a little taste of this extraordinary story, quite remarkable um, love story and, and historical record, and uh, really incredible picture of m- courage and endurance and, and uh, stoicism in the face of so much that these people had to contend with over so many years um you must have thought it was you know all your christmases at once when you found this trove of letters can you tell us a little bit about how you went about you know these over a thousand letters how how you went about finding the narrative through this and how much research you had to do to fill in the gaps
1: well it was daunting i mean it was wonderful but daunting. I mean, it, I had a sense, an instinct, that it was the find of a very lucky lifetime. But at the same time, you know, letters don't make much sense in themselves. They weren't historical. Some of the letters individually read beautifully. Uh, there was the problem that although they were smuggled, they were written in code, a lot of them, and a lot of the meaning was by illusion. So we had to get a transcript made. That t- took two years. And um, Levin Svetlana had both passed away by the time the letters were transcribed. So we had to do memorial researchers, uh, and, and, and I did a lot of work to try and recover a lot of the biographical details. Then, actually, the letters began to make a lot more sense to me when I went to Petraura, interviewed people, got a sense of the place, and then managed to get into the uh, KGB archive of the labor camp itself so that I could uh, relate what Lev was saying from inside the zone to what the security measures were with the zone. So that sort of helped to historicize them. And then, obviously, it was a question of choosing letters that would help the narrative and to place them in in a structure that was shaped, obviously, by me, in a way I hope is is as truthful as possible to the story. And I then sent it to the family to read, and and they were happy with the shaping I'd given it. So it was a, a very complicated process. It's
0: extraordinary. I mean, it's almost novelistic. You know, they they are like characters from a novel. These fantastic uh, descriptions of, of their emotions and what they're going through. I wonder whether there's any moments in in all these letters, or perhaps you know, in the material that you've included in the book that was around their story, that particularly stood out to you, either because it revealed something that we didn't know before about the Gulag, or just in, in terms of human, human experience? Yeah, I mean, it,
1: I tried to write it so that it, it would read like a novel, but in which everything could be footnoted and is footnoted. Um, nothing is made up. So wherever there was a doubt about what was going on, I couldn't really speculate. You might recall in one of the early letters she talks about virtue, about she was reproaching him for, for his virtue. Well, what was that about? We don't mm. know. If, if they were still alive, I could have asked them. Uh, but, so one leaves that unsaid. Um, I think obviously there are a lot of things that came out of the letters that revealed life, daily life inside the camp that were, were a revelation to me. Um, also, I think that just sort of being able to, it's an extraordinary privilege as a historian to be able to sort of enter into the emotional life of other people. I've not had to really do that to this, to this level. Novelists mm. can invent it, and if these are true people, you have to. You, you're almost sort of prying on their emotional life. But sometimes the letters, if I can give one, one just example, because it says a lot about, about life inside the camp, and it also says a lot about their relationships. Svetlana is spending a lot of time gathering um, food, medicines, uh, vitamins, for, for Lev to send in parcels, and it, in the conditions of post-war Moscow, that's a great sacrifice to be made, and Lev is trying to tell her, don't, don't do this. But she's then saying, oh, but I want to do it. It's the only thing that gives us pleasure. And there's one letter I'd quite like to cite to you, if I have a minute to do so, because it actually also says something about Svetlana's tremendous sense of humour. I met them. I went to see them in uh, 2008, and we'd filmed about a week's interviews with them. I would like, like to have shown it to you, but we couldn't set up PowerPoint. And Svetlana, even then at the age of 92, had a wonderful sense of humour. I think it comes out in this letter where she's saying what she's sent in the parcels. As for the parcels, don't try to stop them. For us at the moment, it's the only thing that brings any kind of satisfaction. All the others in our lives may be necessary, but they don't bring any kind of joy. Mama has asked me to tell you what was in the parcel that was sent on the 20th. Here's the list. A white shirt, warm socks, lined trousers, a towel and headscarf, soap, toothpaste, a brush and comb, slippers, thread and buttons, two tins up to a kilogram of tinned food and a box of chocolates with strange packaging, as I told you, but Papa insisted on it because of the rats, paper and a textbook, pencils, pen and ink, glucose, and ascorbic acid, vitamin C to the unenlightened. Eat it, for God's sake.
0: (laughs) Uh, We've got to be very, very strict about our timekeeping because of the um, production going up uh, later. But I wonder whether, just before we uh, open it up, I think we'll have time for a couple of questions from the audience. Um, But I think we're all dying to know, and you've kind of given us a little spoiler there. Did they get their happy ending?
1: It's a story with a happy ending. Um, Lev is released in July 1954 because he's a political prisoner. He's not allowed to go back to Moscow. So he settles in a village about 100 kilometers away. And then like Lev... Uh, like Svetlana being smuggled into the labour camp, he's smuggled into Moscow to visit her, and eventually in 1955, he's amnestied and can marry Svetlana at last. They have a daughter born the following year, and Nikita, who's still alive, born in 1957. Lev returns to scientific work, not at the level of high-powered nuclear research that he'd been engaged in before the war, By uh, 1956, the world of nuclear physics has moved on, but he goes back to Moscow University and works as a lab assistant and works there for 34 years. And um, in 2000, he begins to write his memoirs, is helped by Memorial, begins to see these letters, which I don't think he'd ever seen before as of historical interest, he'd seen them purely private, but now sees their significance and donates them to Memorial. Um, I do a week's interviewing with them in 2008 Lev dies in uh, 2008, and Svetlana in January 2010. And they're buried side by side in a, in a cemetery in Moscow.
0: Wow. So it's a fantastic story. And um, obviously, do buy the book if you would like to hear some more of that. And Orlando will be signing copies in the stalls foyer. Um, thank you again for coming. And please join me in thanking Professor Orlando Phaegi.